Today's episode of Between the Covers is brought to you by All Lit Up, Canada's independent online bookstore and literary space for readers of emerging, quirky, and acclaimed indie books. All Lit Up is your Canadian connection for award-winning fiction and poetry, author interviews, book roundups, recommendations, and more. The only online retailer dedicated to Canadian literature, All Lit Up features books from 61 literary publishers. All Lit Up makes it easy to discover, buy, and collect exciting contemporary Canadian literature all in one place. What's more, for a limited time, listeners of Between the Covers get 10% off all books on All Lit Up with promo code Between the Covers. Check out All Lit Up at www.alllitup.ca. That's A L L L I T up.ca. Today's episode is also brought to you by Katya Kazbek's debut novel, Little Foxes Took Up Matches, which K Ming Chang calls stunning and transformative. The novel follows Mitya, whose young life mirrors the uncertain future of his country as it attempts to rebuild itself after the collapse of the Soviet Union, torn between its past and the promise of modern freedom. Mitya finds himself facing a different sort of ambiguity. Is he a boy, as everyone keeps telling him? Or is he not quite a boy, as he often feels? Told with deep empathy, humor, and a bit of surreality, Katya Kazbek's Little Foxes Took Up Matches is a revelation about the life of one community in a country of turmoil and upheaval, glimpsed through the eyes of a precocious and empathetic child whose heart and mind understand that there are often more than two choices. Little Foxes Took Up Matches is out on April 5th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. I'm excited to welcome back Sheila Hetty to the show. There's something unique about her return this time, which I'll refrain from telling you about here so that it can reveal itself naturally within the conversation you're about to hear. But Sheila, in addition to the release of her new book, has been serializing an Ulipian experiment of hers in the New York Times magazine, one where she takes 10 years of her diary entries and reorders it alphabetically to great effect. For the bonus audio, she discusses this project and reads for us the letters H and I, which joins the past contribution by Sheila of her reading of the fantastic essay, My Life is a Joke. To learn about subscribing to the bonus audio and the other potential benefits of becoming a supporter of the show, which include the possibility of becoming a Tin House early reader, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, and also rare collectibles from everyone from Nikki Finney to Ursula K. Le Guin, to things every supporter gets from participating in our collective brainstorm of who to invite in the future to be on the show, and the resource-rich emails that accompany each episode, pointing you to other things to read, watch, or listen to related to the conversation at hand. You can find out more about joining the Between the Covers community at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's episode with Sheila Hetty. 
stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Sheila Hattie, is a formally restless and eternally curious artist. She spent a year studying playwriting at the National Theatre School of Canada, studied art history and philosophy at the University of Toronto. She's a founder of the Trampoline Hall Lecture Series, appeared in Margot Williamson's film Teenager Hamlet, is a sporadic podcaster with her show Podcast with Raisins, plays the character Lenore Doolin within Leanne Shapton's book Important Artifacts and Personal Property from the collection of Lenore Doolin and Harold Morris, including books Street Fashion and Jewelry. She co-edited a book of image text with Shapton and Heidi Julevitz called Women in Clothes, which features the voices of 639 women from Miranda July and Roxane Gay to Kim Gordon and Renee Gladman to my wife, Lucy. She co-wrote with Misha Gluberman the book of conversational philosophy, The Chairs Are Where the People Go. She was a longstanding interviews editor for The Believer magazine and has conducted incredible interviews with the likes of Sophie Cal, Joan Didion, Agnes Varda, and Elena Ferrante. She writes literary criticism and art criticism. She has a serialized Ulipian project now in the New York Times Magazine, taking her diary of 10 years, a half million words, putting it into Excel, and reshaping it alphabetically as both a self-diagnostic and a making of art. She's a children's book author of both We Need a Horse and the forthcoming A Garden of Creatures. And her play All Our Happy Days Are Stupid with songs by Destroyers Dan Bejar was staged to sold-out runs in both Toronto and New York City. But Sheila Hetty is best known for her novels, if we can call them that, particularly her last three, her novel How Should a Person Be, for which she first appeared on the show, a novel influenced and shaped by everything from playwriting, performance art, and painting, to self-help books and psychoanalysis, a novel that reimagines what a novel is and can be. And her next book, Motherhood, for which she returned to the show, was again a departure and a surprise was again a way of reimagining the form, a book written by facing backwards to time, a book written in collaboration with chance, a book trying to begin to tell a new story from which other stories could be built. And our conversation about it is one of those rare ones where people mention listening to it many times. Rachel Cusk said of motherhood, 
This inquiry into the modern woman's moral, social, and psychological relationship to procreation is an illumination, a provocation, and a response, finally, to the new norms of femininity formulated from the deepest reaches of female intellectual authority. It is unlike anything else I've read. Sheila Hetty has broken new ground, both in her maturity as an artist and in the possibilities of the female discourse itself. So it should probably come as no surprise, though it always does, that Hetty's new book, Another New Way to Look at a Book, Pure Color, would set its own terms in such a way as to unmoor the critics, whose words themselves become abstract when normal attempts to classify a work of literature simply don't apply. Alexandra Kleeman, in her rave review for the New York Times, calls Pure Color part bonkers cosmology, part contemporary parable, a creation myth viewed through the keyhole size aperture of a single life. Judith Shulevitz, in her rave review for The Atlantic, calls it a gloriously implausible book. Kirkus, in its starred review, calls it the rarest of novels, as alien as a moon rock and every bit as wondrous. And finally, Michael Silverblatt declares, This is a singular novel, a galaxy of a novel by a philosopher of modern experience. It offers a new beginning for the novel. This is the new beginning for the novel. Welcome back to Between the Covers, Sheila Hetty. Thank you. So I know that originally this book was to be a book about art critics, that you had this sentence that goes back 15 years, God is three art critics in the sky, and that perhaps this was finally the time to figure out why this line had been lingering for you. But when your father died during the writing of the book, the book became about many other things. Um, but I'd like to first start with your initial impulse to write about art criticism before the grief of losing your father reshaped things. I'd love to know, beyond this lingering sentence, what emotions or questions or grievances motivated your desire to write about art critics. Because if we step back from pure color, where God himself has decided he is not happy with his creation, that it will be just a first draft, that the warming of the earth is the first sign of his future destruction of what we know, and where our role on earth as humans is to be God's art critics in three different modes as part of his revision process for the next draft. If we step back from this and think about criticism more generally, you've been an art and literary critic. You were married to a music critic. You interview art critics. But I, I mainly think about, especially the last time we talked, about how polarizing your work can be with critics which I think is often true about art that is harder to immediately contextualize or categorize. For instance, Pearl Sagel for The New Yorker about your new book says, it is written in a register that is so involute and so new for this writer that it demands bespoke criteria. And, and while your books have received extreme praise, they also often simultaneously receive sometimes extremely negative responses and you could say this about each of your last three books, but probably more so with Motherhood, which we talked about when you were here. We talked about the criticism about 
particularly some intellectual female critics who seemed super triggered by the project and, and in a way sort of revealed um, more about themselves than they did about you or the book in the way that they critiqued it. And I, and I remember Lenny Zumas at the time who called your, your book deeply thoughtful, ambivalent, and self-questioning and embracing antidote to the sexist sentimentalization of motherhood, noticed how these critics were sort of reinscribing the sexism, um, perpetuating the cliche that child-free people never grow up by saying that your narrator was throwing a tantrum or acting like a ne neglected baby. Um, so I guess this is my, my long-winded preamble to ask you to unpack this for us, the original impulse. Is it uh, coming from this bipolar response from your work? Is it coming from a wound or an anger or more of a curiosity or a simple love of, criti of, of art criticism or to figure out whether art criticism, criticism is even necessary? Well, I think before the art criticism um, investigation, I guess, was this, I have a note um, and the note said something like a book um, that about a book about which nobody could say what it's about. Like I had this desire after motherhood. Yeah. To write a book that nobody, nobody could say there, there was no about about the book. Um, because I think I was, I was starting this book right around the time that motherhood came into the world. And I was very frustrated that it seemed to be for so easily reduced into like a book about what a woman trying to decide whether, or specifically me trying to decide whether or not to have a kid. And I thought the book was about so much more than that. And I wanted this, whatever next book I wrote to be something that could not be so easily, um, you know, sort of reduced or explained. And so that was my starting point in some sense. And then I, I, I had an impulse to go back to this book that I love called Manet and his Critics. And it's a book that collects all the writing um, that was done about his paintings during the years that he exhibited in the Paris salons at the end of the 19th century. And I'm just so fascinated with that book and the way that the critics wrote about the paintings because to anybody who's modern or contemporary with us, there's nothing shocking or strange or weird about them at all. But to the critics at the time, it almost seemed like they literally couldn't see them. There was something that was going on in the paintings that for them made them so angry and, and so contemptuous of Manet and so um, uh, just, yeah, furious. Um, and you can see that fury in the reviews. And I think that I've also experienced that kind of contempt and fury and sort of, it's just too hard to look at one's own um, critics and one's own work in relation to one's critics. Cause you, as an artist, never know like, well, maybe they're right. Maybe my work is bad. You just don't know. But I know that Manet is great for me. He's my favorite painter. And so it was a way of looking at the kind of response that I've received, um, but not, but you know, through the lens of 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 a painter who I can say without any hesitation is great. You can't say that about yourself, um, and just to try to understand like why, not only why art can provoke such anger, but why in our daily lives we're constantly provoked to criticism. Um, 
why in our daily lives, it's so hard to just sort of be happy to be alive and like grateful that we're here and to experience the beauty of the world, you know? So this, so criticism, both of art, but also criticism of, of life, of life, our lives, all that stuff was um, in my mind when I started the book. Yeah. Well, at the time we last talked, I, I don't think I, I fully realized how much that criticism had affected you. And, and more recently when I, I listened to your podcast, um, there was an episode, I think, around the time we talked where you, you sort of unpacked some of, of the criticism at the time and we're talking about how a, a lot of it was really happening in the United States, this, this sort of um, uh, contempt that in Canada and Europe, people were, were much more open to the philosophical questions in the book, uh, for, for instance, about time and lineage and ancestry. Um, and I was just curious, I guess, about because you've thought a lot about criticism and you've written it, what are, are there specific things that make criticism work for you? Uh, things that qualities about criticism that you seek when you're wanting to read about art or writing from another or uh, on the flip side, something that you particularly recoil from? Well, when I'm writing it, I always am trying to figure out a way to understand that book as being the best possible book. Like I want to um, show how the book is sort of deeply uh, lovable. Um, I kind of think that the person that can love any particular book is always the one that's right about it because they are accessing whatever it was that inspired the writer to write it. Um, so in terms of writing a book review, I'm trying to make the book better for the reader. Um, though those are not the reviews that I like reading. I think that for me, my version of People Magazine or gossip blogs are um, really negative book reviews. Like there's this kind of delicious pleasure I get from reading um an incredibly mean spirit, unfair, uh, or fair, you know, but like a very analytical, critical review. I love reading them. I don't, I don't think that I love reading them though, for any dignified reason. Right. It's just, uh, it, it's, it's just like, um, indulging in gossip with a friend about a third friend, you know? Um, but I get like such a deep, pleasure probably partly the pleasure that they're not doing that about my book but they're doing it about somebody else's book I mean it's not it's you know I'm just um yeah I find it interesting um but it's not the kind of thing that I would ever ever in a million years write or want to write yeah well in, in one of your podcast episodes one of them is is a moment where you you can't sleep you're up really late at night because you've just handed off your book to people you want feedback from and you're whispering into the microphone and I imagine you're in bed under the covers in the dark for some reason. Um, <laughs> you're you're both super excited and super anxious about these people you respect and love reading and assessing your book. And you talk about how it feels like this is a taste of the book of how the book will be in the world, and that getting these responses takes you outside of yourself in a way that isn't pleasant. And you wonder at the time if you can publish your next book differently but also can't imagine not being interested in what people say about your book. And you also say that it is alienating to spend years alone with something 
and then all of a sudden need to speak about a creation that is meant to speak for itself. And the talking about it can feel like a betrayal of the work. So on the one hand, I feel like there is grief and pain and maybe even a little resentment in it moving from a private thing to a public one. But on the other hand, there is this excitement about connection. And you, despite your hesitations, send your book to many, many people. I think you might have even said 40 people for this book for feedback. Um, McKenna Goodman, who gave you its final title. Sarah Manguso, who called it one of the best books she'd ever read about grief. And the one book of yours that made her cry. Um, Garth Greenwell, Patrick DeWitt, many, many others. And, and it feels like, in a sense, a community of writers is helping you find the book's final form. And I think one way to look at how should a person be is how to resolve this public-private split in a writer, which it feels like that's the questions that you were raising this sleepless night. Um, a question that seems to endure for you, like I think of your craft seminar, what do people see when they read you? whose description begins, what do you most want to write? And the secondary question, what is going through the minds of other people as they read your work? Is there a value to thinking about this second concern? How should we approach the problem of other minds? And what is outside criticism worth? So is there a value to this second concern? Um, um, a concern that, that seems to be one of the animating questions in Pure Color? I mean, everybody works in a different way. I know, you know, Sally Rooney, for instance, does not show her work to anybody except her editor at the very end. Um, so there are, and I'm, I know there are lots of writers who, who don't share. And so for them, there's a value in, in that purity of that process. But for me, I'm really interested in art being a way for me to have relationships with people. Um, and art making those relationships uh, about the most important thing in my life, um, which is which is writing books. Um, and to not be alone in that passion is very important for me because I want to feel like we're all working together to make this this world that we live in, this world of symbols, this world that we live in that's sort of like filtered through art. Like the, I want to be, you know, I, I don't think a book stands alone. I think a book is part of other books and it's a part of culture and it's a part of life and it's a part of the history. It's just, it's interwoven with everything. It's not just this object on its own. And I, I sort of want to bring that belief into the way that I make it. And I also just think that believing that your mind is the best and only mind um, in terms of how useful it is in making your book. For me, I just sort of got rid of that belief when I wrote, how should a person be? I was trying to work my way out of that feeling that, yeah, that my mind was the best and only mind to make the book. And I want to believe that, you know, I'm not just taking some random person off the street. It's people that I respect and who's who I think are interest have interesting minds. I want their thoughts and their um, feelings and and their reality and their experience of the world to be part of the shaping of the book in order to make the book 
the best it can be because the book is for people. And so if more brilliant people are involved in the making of it, I would think that I would think then that the book will have a greater reach and like a deeper reach with, you know, into human beings rather than if it's just me alone with my aesthetic and my guessing of how the book is going to affect other people. If I send it to Garth Greenwell or Sarah Manguso and I get their response, then I know how the book is working because you can't know how the book is working if you don't let people read it. Right. Well, I want to, I want to take this back to Manet for, for a minute. Our, our main, our main protagonist, Mira, she, she's gotten into the prestigious American Academy of American Critics, which is a place where you eat copious croissants, drink, drink tisanes, and have <laughs> mandatory Tai Chi, um, which is so great. But also the name American Academy of American Critics is such a great poking fun of us Americans and our endless, <laughs> endless self-regard. Um, so um, I love that too. But Mira attends a lecture on Manet, which I absolutely love and find so funny and smart. And I would love for if you would read that short chapter for us as we find Mira struggling to maintain her own personal and intimate experience with Manet in the face of this full frontal deconstruction and assault on him, I guess. Sure. I felt like I could feel the delight of you writing this. This was one of the first things I wrote for the book. This was, yeah one of the earliest pieces. Their old professor, Albert Wolf, stood before a screen on which was projected a slide of a painting of an asparagus. He made a great display of looking for what he did not see while the students stood around him in the darkened room. He explained that the world was still going through a fashionable love of Manet, but that soon everyone would come to share his point of view. Edouard Manet is a curious personality, as a painter, he has an eye, but no hand. The fairy godmother who presided at his birth gave him the primary qualities that an artist must have. But soon the bad fairy came to his bassinet and said, child, you will never go any further. Through my power, I now steal from you the qualities which in the end make the artist. As Mira leaned against the wall, she felt an exquisite quivering in her chest as though something had entered it and was expiring there. But moments later, her skin grew hot and she felt ashamed at the gap between what Albert Wolfe was saying and how the painting made her feel. He said that the painting had some of the qualities of art, but that there was something missing, the essential thing, the spark that says, more than here. The painting hangs before the spectator with the same qualities of frankness and meaninglessness as the person who was standing before it. One cannot feel dignified by it, or lifted up by it in any way. I'm not inspired to think more highly of myself as a man standing before this painting than when I stand before a brick wall. I think humans are defeated at the outset. We might as well not even try. Yet art is supposed to give us the opposite feeling, that human endeavor has wings. A painting should make a person take flight spiritually, but a painting like this one has no wings. So we are given the feeling that wings are not even a thing. The asparagus sits there like a stone in the soul, ridiculing our spiritual pretensions. But spirituality is not a pretension. There's no difference between spirituality and a song, and the song in Manet's heart is the sound of a foghorn. 
we should feel pity for this desperate and searching boy painter who lacks the essential thing, yet doesn't even know it. But to know it, all he would have to do is stand before his painting in any museum and look right and look left and see how the work of the greatest painters makes the soul take flight and then look back at his own painting, vague, rushed, crude, unenchanted, and offering no flight. How can he not see it? A painter with no eyes or eyes cut off from his hand? What do humans go to art for but to locate within themselves that inward turning eye? which breathes significance into all of existence. For what is art but the act of infusing matter with the breath of God? The artist who cannot do this paints irrelevant forms without life. It is obvious why the critics laughed, because they were baffled not to see what they were entitled to see. A person dresses up to go outside, and art must dress up too. But Manet's paintings are naked, bare, not only in his ridiculous subject matter, but spiritually as well. An artist knows himself to be an artist because of how he relates to his own sincerity, Maddie said. Then would there not have been some uneasiness in Manet while he was painting? Some awareness that he lacked the essential thing? Maddie stood there smoking languidly. He was the great, bright hope of the school. Wolf nodded. A great artist rests back in the easy chair of his talent, and it's like resting back in the warm hand of God. But Manet's talent does not rest and he is oblivious to his own stumbling. He is like a dog who walks with three legs, who believes himself no different from a dog who walks with four. He wants the public to do his job. They should simply feel enchanted. He asks the public to finish his painting, for he is lazy and incapable. There must be some deep frustration in him as he works, trying to correct what can never be saved. So he paints in a hurried way, not wanting to see what he's made. That's why his canvases are such a mess. There is no compass in his soul, so his vision becomes chaotic. One can sense the envy in his heart, yet he doesn't even know what in other painters to envy. Unable to pull off beauty, he hides behind an ugliness that he calls beauty, and his canvas has turned out shameful, and so the critics shame him, for he makes us ashamed. Then he continues to make his paintings, which have nothing to offer, and turns and blames the critics for their crimes." We've been listening to Sheila Hetty read from her new book, Pure Color. There's no compass in his soul, Sheila. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so in this world, there are three types of people. Bird people who care about beauty, order, harmony, and meaning, and offer an aesthetic critique for God. Fish people who give a structural critique through their concerns about collectivity, fairness, and justice. And then bear people who are most concerned with intimacy, connected to things they can smell and touch. And, and our main character, Mira, is a bird. You've said you're a bird. And we are all, regardless of our types, living in the moment of God standing back before he destroys the canvas. And this notion, I think, it happens several times in the Bible itself, um, but in a, I think in a crucially different way. But over 40 days and 40 nights, God destroys the earth and all its inhabitants by flood and then starts over with Noah and his animals. And then Moses spends 40 days and 40 nights on Mount Sinai, receives the covenant, but then upon seeing his people worshiping the golden calf, he smashes it and has to go back up again for another 40 days and 40 nights to receive a second different covenant. 
But those times the earth is destroyed because of God's disapproval of the people he has created. But it feels in contrast in pure color, the people themselves are enlisted in dreaming the second draft of the world. In a way, we are critiquing God and his work. We are workshopping God for him. And the critics are crucial to the future world, even as they won't see it. And what I think is interesting is others have pointed out, and I think it's true, that there is a conflation in your book, one that feels generative and interesting to me, where the artists and the art critics are one and the same. Yes, the critics won't see the next representation of reality, but it also feels like their imagining of it is not just revision, but also simply art making. Uh, I guess I wondered if that felt right to you. Yeah, and it just, I'm just thinking like that it connects to the earlier part of our conversation where I guess this is the way I make art, which is bring other artists in to critique it um, so that I can make it better, you know, I being, you know, the god of this book. Right. Um, so to extrapolate my own experience of art making into how a god might have made this universe um, and that other eyes are necessary and criticism during the process is necessary in order to bring about a a better final result. And I guess the people that I enlist as critics are themselves artists. So, and I think that for me, I've always believed that the only people you have to listen to really in terms of whether your book works or not are other artists. I mean, I think that other artists for me are the only critics that I really take completely seriously because well, I think because they're open to anything as long as it works. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, one of the things that I most like about your work is is how influenced it is by non-literary influences and the way you allow your prose to be influenced by these non-literary things feels like one way the novel gets redrafted when you write that in a strange way, these non-literary influences again confuse art making and art remaking. Um, I'm thinking of performance art and auto ranks, psychoanalytic theories, the I Ching, but most notably visual art, which feels like a through line in the last three novels. But before we talk about painting and by extension color, I wanted to spend a moment with voice because you've assumed you, you've assumed a voice like no other you've written from before. The voice is often declarative, and because the voice relies so much, because the book relies so much on voice more than plot, we rely as readers not on what happens, but on these declarations as the main evidence of how the world works. And the voice sometimes reminds me, in some ways, of the way a god would speak or of reading a religious text. And the voice is outside of what we often encounter because as Segal says in, in her review, in pure color, Hetty dispenses with fiction staples, including physical description, characterization, revealing dialogue, appreciable stakes, even basic sensory information. And I wondered if 
pure color had less obvious sources for it or even less respectable sources in literary circles than than religious texts, for instance. Because I think of how, with how should a person be, one of the influences was self-help books, for instance. Um, and I think here, I think about fairy tales, for instance, with characters that are types. But also think of things like with the with the bear fish um bird i i think of astrology i think of tarot like i'm wondering are there other things that are what are or what are the things that you looked toward to make this voice well i didn't really look towards anything but you know tarot um yeah that's like my you know, psychics speak that way, like people Mm -hmm. that just, um, I mean, none of these were things that I was looking to directly, but that those are all part of my life and the lives of my friends, you know, that will all go talk to this one psychic and they speak so declaratively, you know, with such authority and in such um, puzzle-like ways. Um, And it's not a matter of thinking that it's true, but are you going to play the game of believing that it's true in order to get something out of that belief, uh, that temporary belief, you know, that's like any suspension of disbelief, like, okay, I'll go with it and see where that takes me. Um, I think that's how all the people that I know who are interested in this other realm, take that other realm, you know, not as a proposition about reality, well, as a proposition about oh. reality, you know? Right. Um, no, that's how it felt as a reader. Like, you just you you just need to accept the terms that are being declared um, to go along for the ride. Yeah. So I really wasn't looking to any books or forms and thinking, how am I going to write this book? But all of that stuff was just in my life. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if... I'm yeah. not surprised to hear you say that that's the tone that you hear, you know? Well, there were there were multiple ways I felt like the book had a paradoxical effect on me. Um, one of them is with regard to the direct address, I wondered about audience because sometimes I feel like the book is addressed to everyone collectively as a species. And other times it feels like it is addressed to no one, that I'm listening into something private or overhearing something sometimes something that might be being spoken to oneself. And that made me wonder if your direct address had an imagined target in mind. No, I like what you said about everyone and no one. I think that's true of this book. I mean, um, you know, with, with, with my other books, there were specific people that I was writing this book to writing those book towards uh, audience generally and specific people in my life. But with this book, there was no conception of audience in that sense. Yeah. Well, the second paradox has to do with your desired effect in the reader. I think in in the art review podcast, subject, object, verb, you said that you want to leave space in your books for the reader to have their own thoughts on a subject. And that this is a function of what level of description you give that by not heavily describing it allows the reader to stay in their own body in the place that they are as they read having their own thoughts about what they are reading. In the same conversation, you say that there is so little contemporary fiction that lets the reader step out on their own 
unless they close the book or where the writer steps out of the narrative with you, like when Jane Austen might suddenly critique her characters. In essence, it feels like you're, you're trying to create a reading experience that is the opposite of the fictive spell, where the reader disappears into the text and where the text seems to disappear itself, but instead to create a space for the reader to stay in themselves, having an experience with the book. But what's interesting about Pure Color is that it feels like two contradictory things happen. There, there are aspects of the book that don't allow the fictive spell for sure, but also don't allow the reader's thoughts at all, like we've just discussed about these declarations. They're delivered in a way of, this is how it is. But other parts of the book are almost this explosion of questions about existence that are also presented abstractly, but they feel wildly open and there's so much space for the reader that I imagine every reader is having a radically different experience one to the next. Yeah. I mean, I think with the declarative sentences, even if maybe it doesn't like to say that this is the first draft of existence, I think that the value of those for me in a book is that after you close the book, that you go into the world and look at the world through that lens. It's the same you know, well, is that true? What does, the, if that's true, what does that mean for this day? And what does that mean for this action? So, I mean, in that sense, it's like, um, you know, getting the reader to do a kind of fictionalization of their life to sort of put this fictional lens over their life outside the book, mm. which is really exciting to me. Yeah. As I told you by email, um, very few people have come on the show twice. Less than 20 episodes out of over 200 are people returning to the show. And only one person has been on three times, Ursula K. Le Guin. And for many years, I've had this superstition about ever having someone on three times. <laughs> um, at the same time, I've I've known that eventually with the passage of time, many more people would come on the show twice and certainly people would begin coming on the show three times. And I always imagined it would either be you or Mary Rufel who would be the first post Le Guin person. <laughs> but, but while I have trouble, ima I, I have trouble imagining Le Guin is a big figure in your writing or reading life for some reason. But I did think of her, particularly her essay, the carrier bag theory of fiction which looks at inherited male forms of story and puts forth an alternative. I think of this essay when, when thinking of the ways you've removed recognizable story shape and structure from your work, or when Alexandra Kleeman described pure color structure as like a fishing net, which to me feels like a kindred object to this carrier bag. Um, and I also think of when you interviewed Rachel Cusk, and she said, she doesn't believe in character or the ideal put forth that a character changes over the course of a novel. She instead believes in moments of truth, particularly moments of female truth and of what she calls iconic utterances. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on any of that, on this notion of a book built around iconic utterances. Um, 
or sort of an evacu uh, evacuating a book of of recognizable story shape. Yeah, I just got chills when you were saying what Rachel had said. Um, I love how her mind works so much. Yeah, it's wonderful. Uh, it's, it's interesting because she's she speaks so authoritatively, and yet I know that she feels like she has no authority. So it's interesting how everyone's kind of. Um, yeah, this kind of funny paradox, or they don't see themselves properly. Um, I, I mean, I remember when I was 12 years old, like, or 13, um, going to um, going to improv classes and thinking that I wanted to be a playwright and reading this book by this Hungarian, um, whose last name is Egri, E-G-R-I, uh, and Laos, I should be able to pronounce it, L-A-J-O-S, Laos Egri. And it was called The Art of Dramatic Writing. And I would read this book and try to teach myself um, what he said dramatic writing was, which is you have a conflict, you know, and then it's resolved in some way. And one person wants one thing and another person wants another thing. And just sort of laying it all out and using um, Ibsen and, and, and various um, great works of um, playwriting as examples for how plays work. And I remember just feeling then so, you know, trying to do the exercises where you write down a character and what they want, and then you write down another character and what they want, and you try to create this scenario. And it just always seemed like I would never be able to figure that out. And I would never, it just felt so alien to me, but also something that I really had to learn and figure out and understand in order to be a great playwright or a playwright at all. And I was thinking about that recently because I realized that my solution, and I guess Rachel's solution and the solution of many people in the end is just well, I don't actually think that's how the, that's, that's not, that's not how I think life is. And so if that's not how life is, why am I making art with that structure that I don't even really recognize in life? Um, and then you ask yourself, well, what, what do I recognize in life? And I guess in Rachel's case, it's iconic utterances. Maybe she listens and she remembers what people say, you know, and she doesn't experience change in herself or in others. And so why would she put that in a book? Because a book I think is supposed to be like a representation of how you understand the world to be. Um, and in my case with this book, you know, the years that I was writing it, you know, I had a very mystical experience and a very mystical feeling. And I think the only way to convey that, um, well, there's different ways of conveying a mystical experience, but one way is just to be very declarative because you can't convince somebody um, of something irrational. Uh, you say it and it's either believed or not believed, but I guess there's other parts in the book in which I'm trying to like invoke the feeling that Mira had, um, that kind of magical feeling that she goes through the world with. So I, maybe I was trying different strategies. Yeah. Well, let's, let's hear a couple more of your iconic utterances. Um, I was thinking the chapter on 165 and then the chapter on 87. Okay. In the middle years of life, you no longer have access to culture the same way you did before. You are mostly shut out. 
the party's happening behind a closed door. You can barely hear the party, and the scraps of conversation you can overhear are not the entire story. There is no pleasure in detecting only a few sounds through the wall. It's not that the young people have shut you out, so don't go envying the young people who aren't even having that good a time of it. Just because they look great doesn't mean they feel great. God doesn't want the criticisms of the most dynamic parts of culture coming from someone in the middle of life, so the heart of culture is made invisible to you. But when God blinds your eyes to culture, he opens your eyes to everything else. But what else is there? Seasons, birds, the wind in the trees. So don't go chasing your old forms of sight. Instead, learn to see newly. Right now, it may feel like a loss of sight, or like you don't understand the things you see, but there is still a lot to see here. God doesn't care what you think about a band. God has put a hole in your head so things like that fall out of it. Yet you keep trying to put things like that into it. There is not a hole in your head for no reason at all. There's a hole in your head for certain things and not for certain other things. Find the things that don't leak out and fill your head with those ones. She had thought that when someone died, it would be like they went into a different room. She had not known that life itself transformed itself into a different room and trapped you in it without them. She wanted her father to know how bad she was feeling. She didn't want to get over the pain. She didn't have the energy to make the best of it. She didn't see what purpose it would serve to make the best of something in a world that felt stripped of any arrows, any direction, any sense. Who would she be making the best of it for? Herself? She didn't care about herself. Her father who wasn't there? The living? It was the dead who needed our love. The dead who she wanted to be loyal to. The dead who needed us most. The living could take care of themselves, going to the grocery store and all that sunshine. It was the dead who needed to be held on to so they would not slip away. Who would save the dead from oblivion, if not we, the living? She would have to hold on to her father forever, so he would not slip away. And listening to Sheila Hetty read from Pure Color, I want to spend much of the rest of the time we have together about the father in the book and how his death changes everything for Mira, as you've alluded to just before your readings. Um, you said you recoiled when a friend suggested pure color could have been called fatherhood. And I get why, because in almost every way, pure color and motherhood are different books, formally and tonally, in, in almost every conceivable way. But there is a way I feel like they share a similar gesture. In motherhood, you decide that what you want is not to create another life, but to turn toward your mother and her ancestors and almost mother in that direction uh, towards your matrilineal line. And it feels similar here when, with Mira saying it isn't the living that needs us, who's going, who's going to save the dead from oblivion if not us. Um, so if we look back toward your patrilineal line, I want to return to painting as an influence for you and your writing, both motherhood and how should a person be have a, a deep engagement with painting. You yourself write in your friend Margot's painting studio, so you see her paintings in progress as you write. Your grandfather was a painter, and, and when your father died and when Mira's father dies in the book, you both felt like you saw colors differently, that they move you in a new way. Perhaps that 
color might be a gift from your father to you. Uh, and you've said before that you like to think of writing through the lens of what painters do rather than what other writers do. And I was hoping you could talk about that, what that means for you more specifically, to think about painting uh, as, a, as a mode to approach your writing. What I love about a painting is that you can take it in in one glance. Um, and I wish that for the novel. Um, I guess the memory of a novel is experienced, so to speak, in one glance. So eventually you get that single glance, you get that sense of the whole after you finish the book. But I sort of think I envy painters the ability to just give that to somebody. And when I'm constructing a novel, I'm trying to think of it, I think the way that a painter lays out their canvas, which is, um, I think, more in terms of shape than narrative, though narrative itself is a shape. But, you know, when I watch Margot paint, uh, you know, she fills in the whole canvas and she works intuitively and there's a relationship between all the shapes and all the colors and everything has to do with everything else and there's this in integration of everything into the final image and I I feel like as I'm writing a book those are the kinds of concerns that I have in mind um I want everything to sort of resonate with everything else more in the way of it's, or, it's placement within the novel than I think this concern with, you know, telling a great story. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I guess it's just a more, it's, I just feel like I have more in common with whatever impulse the, the painter has than with whatever impulse the, no, the most novelists have. One, one of your grandfather's favorite painters was Pierre Bonnard. And you were on the Financial Times podcast at the Tate Modern talking about an exhibit of his work. Um, you talked about how Bernard didn't paint from models, but from memory and recollection. And this was really interesting to me in a couple different ways. For one, you said if he was asked to paint a certain object, he might say he wouldn't paint it because he hadn't lived with it long enough to paint it. That it isn't simply looking at it and then representing it, but living with it. Um, but also that because he wasn't looking at the objects themselves when he was painting, that there isn't one vantage point to his paintings. Rather, there's a collection of points, points of view that isn't entirely naturalistic. And I love thinking about this as a way to write, writing from different angles but within the same frame angles that don't quite match up and maybe that there's something about them not quite matching up that captures something that it wouldn't capture if they did. Um, I don't know. Is this, is this mode of seeing slash remembering feel reflective to you in any way around your process? Yeah, that makes sense because I think I'm interested and experienced time as much more confusing and um, complicated than li a, a linear narrative. You don't, I don't feel like the present 
naturally came from the past because I have such a poor memory <laughs> and I don't, I don't, I don't know, it, you know, that idea that every moment is kind of an eter eternity feels very right to me because how is it that when you're in a moment and you're having an emotional reaction, um, it's so impossible to step outside it and to remember how you felt at other times when you, when you, when you hate somebody, it's so hard to access the feeling of, of gratitude towards them. So there's just such embeddedness in, in the present. Um, and, you know, I think writing, writing this book, you know, and trying to write about something sort of mystical, you can't, you can't write about that through the devices of linear narrative because the mystical is not something that exists in the same time space as, 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 as a human life. It's somehow outside it um, and it penetrates it in its own ways and um, sort of holds uh, this human being that like moves through the world as an animal, you know, moment to moment. Um, so there would be no way I think of like writing a, a religious or mystical text that um, without sort of messing with narrative in some way. You, you get a lot of Jewish influence questions when you're on tour. Um, sometimes in the Q and a more than half of them are around this. And of course we have things like the failed, the failed Moses thread and how should a person be and, the Sheila character's various sexual exploits with the character Israel and her attempts to assert her independence from him. And motherhood very explicitly engages with the genocide of two out of every three European Jews and the scattering of most of the rest. And there's been some really interesting literary criticism about you through a Jewish lens, most notably that of Nathan Goldman, but also... Judith Shulevitz's recent piece, The Smutty Mystic, What Everyone Gets Wrong About Sheila Hetty, where she claims you've always been a religious writer, but never seen that way, and that pure color is your coming out, where you flaunt your biblicality. I, I know you sidestep these takes, mainly because you grew up in a staunchly atheist, secular Jewish family, and that any of these influences come more through osmosis from whatever the culture imparted to you. You've, you've even said that the question of God, while being something generative within your writing, is not at all something you think about or are compelled by as a question as a person moving, at, moving in the world. But two things interested me in your own personal narrative. One, one you said that when you were little, your parents both worked. And then when you were five, your babysitter took you on a bus and there was a disturbing man on it. But your babysitter said, don't worry, I prayed for us before we left. And you were very intrigued by this and even envied it. But perhaps more to the point, you said that being at your father's deathbed, being with him as he died, was a mystical experience that has changed your life. Um, in the book, Mira spends most of the time with her father inside a leaf on a tree and she joins his spirit there for a while inside this leaf and you've said that this didn't feel like a surreal or fantastical move on your part 
despite it being read that way, but this is how it really felt. So t- talk to us about the mystifying um, in relation to, uh, you've talked about it a little bit. Talk to us more about the mystifying, um, the shift for you in your life that's now being reflected in your art. Well, just to go back a second um, to the religious stuff, um, you know, I, my parents, for some reason, sent me to an Anglican school from grade four to the end of grade nine, at which point I, I wanted to leave. And we had to sing hymns every morning and say the Lord's Prayer. And we had a class called Religious Knowledge. And so I had a lot of religious education that was Anglican. Um, I was the only Jew in the school, mm-hmm. except for one other girl with whom I'm still friends. And I would you know, say Jewish prayers to myself in my head, sort of when we were supposed to be saying the Christian prayers. I didn't even know why I was just trying to sort of retain my, I don't know why it was like, like you talk about being superstitious about somebody being on three times, there was some kind of super superstition involved um, in, in, in doing that. And so I think, you know, religion for me is a very muddled thing. And, um, and I think part of the frustration with having to talk about the books as being Jewish, which I think they are, but the frustration that I have in talking about them is because I really um, re- received a lot of mixed signals about religion growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the books are some way of of untangling it and making it personal um, and meaningful to me. Um, and then in terms of, mysticism I mean that's just something that's even more alien to me because I I never really understood that uh people who spoke about things in that realm as being anything other than flaky you know I just would not have um, you know there's this feeling that like well if, if, if that's true then anything can be true and then we can't know anything and so why talk you know um but then myself having had a very strange experience of my father dying and feeling like that death is not quite as final as I had thought or as um, sad even, you know, that there was joy in it too and, and beauty in this kind of kaleidoscope. There could be this kind of kaleidoscopic beauty in what, what seems like the most dreadful thing you can imagine. Um, I mean, I guess a mystical experience just, turns everything upside down all your previously held beliefs and so if you grow up in a culture in which death is to be feared and not talked about and it's only bad it's on the bad side of the scale and then your experience of it is actually something that opens up this whole other aspect of the world to you and gives you color and um puts you in some different sphere from the the sphere you'd been going about your life in i mean i just find you know, that's just so interesting. And I felt like I'd been misled um, the same way that I felt like I'd been misled about so many other things that I end up writing about. I mean, what, what I want to write about are the things that I feel like I was misled about because other people are being misled. And maybe there's a way of saying, well, no, you don't have to be completely afraid of death or somebody else or the death of somebody you love. Again, this was just one experience I had of death in my life. If somebody else I love dies, I might have a completely different experience and may want to write about that. But this was the one that I had, you know? Um, So for me, this book is not surreal. Yeah, it's like a very 
it's, it's, I tried to get as close to reality as I did in the last two books. Yeah. Well, I want to, I want to come back to this question of mysticism in relation to secularism and also this not talking about in fear of death, but I'm going to take a, what will seem like a detour first. Um, Karen Balin, who you just interviewed for the Paris Review, has a question for you about Mira's love interest in the character Annie, who we haven't discussed yet, um, who's the other major character beyond her father. So I'm going to um, let Karen ask this question. Hi, Sheila. This is Karen, and I have a question for you about Pure Color. Uh, after reading Pure Color, I the thing that's really circles around for me is this relationship between Mira and Annie, um, because it, there is more than one set of grief um, in Pure Color. There's this grief for Mira's father who passes away, um, and then there's Annie, who's this woman Mira knows who's totally alive and who is simply not inclined to return Mira's love. So there's this grief too, or it's like almost more like the quality is of anguish to not get to love someone and, and to really spend time with somebody, even though they're totally alive and living out their life on this earth. Um, so I'm thinking of this unrequited love, love unreturned, a missed connection, um, which happens in pure color and also throughout your work. So um, I guess my, <laughs> my perfectly psychoanalytic question for you is, is, this, is rejection a form of jouissance in your work? Uh, I'm wondering what theories you have about the return of this figure of unrequited love, of rejection, because I find that so often there's so much around that figure that's like this propulsive energy and insight um, and I would also say this kind of like tinged clarity forms around this. Um, so I wonder about what theories you have for the return of this figure. I'm glad for that question because that's not something that I've had, uh, I've been asked about very much. Um, yeah, like everybody, I've had experiences of unrequited love or, or a you know, distant crush, a crush on somebody you don't quite know that you kind of idolize. Um, or you want somebody that you can't have. Um, and I think there is a lot of life in that. I mean, there's a lot of energy in that. There's a lot of imagination that goes into that stunted relationship or that relationship that cannot be. Um, there's this great thing that Adam Phillips, the British psychoanalyst writes about where he talks about this idea of the unlived life and that we, we feel like almost that we know more about the unlived life than we know about the life that we're living. And I've had that experience of, you know, you fall in love with somebody um, or you feel like you've, you're, you have a real crush on somebody and, and yet you can't be with them and you feel you know so clearly what life would be like with them. It's almost as though you've already lived it. Um, and you can't convince yourself of that it, that it's that that it wouldn't be anything like what you imagine. Um, yeah, I think there's there's a lot there's a lot there. Well, sort of as an extension of Karen's question about rejection, 
which I love. I love this sense of like creating a distance and looking at this thing that's supposed to be bad, like maybe the way you're describing uh, death shouldn't be talked about and should be feared, but the actual experience with your father was much more nuanced and surprising. And she, she suggests there's something there around this rejected figure, but part of the structure of the world that you've created of bird types like Mira, fish types like Annie, and bear types like her dad, like Mira's dad, is a way they don't, in a way they, they don't quite succeed at loving each other, perhaps because of their types. I, I don't know, we don't really know the narrative of, of what it's like to be a bear or a fish in this book from the inside, but Mira's anxiety, at least as a bird person, as an art maker, is that she can create something beautiful, but something that is nevertheless potentially hollow, and that maybe she fears she has a deficiency around loving. And God himself seems to be a bird in this way. Um, and I wonder if maybe this is also somehow connected to Pierre Bonnard's notion of these vantage points that don't quite connect the way we hope they do, because we have these types and they clearly are reaching towards each other, but there also seems to be um, the failure of connection as much as there's connection. Yeah, and and all these types are unsuited to human connection, actually, if I think about it, because the bird is not really concerned with other people, you know, um, as much as her own aesthetic experience of the world. And and the fish is interested in people collectively, not any individual person. Um, and the bear gets too close to people for them. You know, th their love can be is kind of suffocating. So none of them have been made to love well. To take this into the back to this question of mysticism, and also just to take this back to this notion of you in sort of inviting the world, the world of people who you love and respect into the making of your book. Um, one thing that's interesting about Annie is she's an orphan and everyone is super captivated and admiring of her because she created herself from nothing. She's quote unquote self-made and she has a mystique because of this. But, but thinking back to the part you read about middle age and how, the place in our brains that used to keep up with the latest pop cultural thing is now empty and ready to be filled with something else. I also think about how particularly when we're young, this existentialist notion, we are born alone and we die alone is so captivating. But this experience with her father in contrast really pokes holes into these notions of the individual self or the mystique that we are self-created and the whole God puts in the middle-aged brains, according to Mira, is to be filled with things that aren't us, seasons, birds, trees, wind. Uh, and this made me think of something the playwright and novelist and now head of PEN America, Ayad Akhtar, talked about when he was on the show. Um, I'm not quoting him. This is from memory, so we should consider them my words having truly or falsely metabolized what I remember. But like you, I grew up in a, in, in a secular Jewish home. And I remember Akhtar 
talking about the range of experience that modern secular life cultivates being one that's quite narrow, that the experience of things that we might, the experience of things that might trouble our sense of self, the ecstatic, for instance, are not readily things we encounter partially by design. Um, and I think myself about how the secular liberal humanist world is scaled to the human and to what we know to be true, not the unknown or the unknowable, that even within the human world, how many of us and how often do we attend a birth or to sit next to someone when they die or to wash their bodies afterwards? Um, But also when thinking about God, when we think back before the medieval language of God, before God was called a lord or a king, a lot of what we consider awe, the combination of fear and wonder, that was the original notion of awe, the fear and trembling and beauty um, was often sort of the way you would describe an encounter with something impossibly large, a large animal that dwarfs us. And, and I wonder if something like the experience of pure color, not the book, but, but the notion of pure color, something that completely resists language, it resists comprehension, something completely inhuman is, is in a way reaching for this, an experience that's not narrowed down, like to, to change the, the, the depths and, and heights of what one could have in a day. Because it feels like there's, there's an eco-poetics in this to me, uh, for lack of a better word. Yeah, I think I I hope so. Um, when my when my father was in was ill, and you know my my boyfriend's stepmother, um, Laura Davilio, who I'm very close to, um, she she had recently, I think a year earlier, sort of been at her mother's bedside while her mother died. And she just told me, like, pay attention, you know, and she kind of intimated that there was that it could be special, that something might happen that could be incredible, as though that had happened to her. And if she hadn't told me that I wouldn't have been open to that, that that possibility and nothing might have happened. And I thought that was this great gift that she gave me to tell me to sort of pay attention in this, this way. Um, I can't remember her words. Um, But I think that, yeah, if you're not oriented by your culture to look for awe and terror and, and the mystical and the beyond and what can't be explained, you just don't, you often don't find it or see it. Yeah. Um, And that's the world we live in. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's the world of reasonableness. It feels like there's all sorts of reasonable ways we've sort of curated a life where we wouldn't have those encounters because we also then wouldn't feel unsafe. I wonder. Yeah, and I, maybe we feel too safe, and then that's why so many people feel bored. Yeah. Well, well, to bring this back to our discussion of criticism at the beginning, you've said, "quote If my book is art." 
a work of art is not the artist talking to you. It is a separate form. It is its own self, an object that has to be separated from the ways we communicate outside of art. All communication apart from art is a person speaking to another person. In America right now, the art object can't be seen. All that can be seen is the artist. What does art have to say? Nothing. It is the presentation of its own form. If it can be done without losing anything important, it is not art. The art object is an object of mystery, ultimately. And the bad art critic is one with the absence of reverence. Or from your New York Times alphabetized diary, art is man's nature. Art is not essential, but love is essential. And that's why people make art, to express their love of something, that tree, humans, the world, language, intensity of thought. And the person who doesn't respond to a work of art is perhaps missing the love of the thing which the artist is pointing to lovingly. I, I know in your in in your Yato podcast with Lauren Groff, she said that books were physical and that writing was the closest thing one could be to an animal, to a squirrel, for instance. And you responded that it's like a squirrel and like God at the same time. And then you said you craved to write something that wasn't another thing somehow about God. Uh, <laughs> can, can you point us now lovingly to, to what desire or animating question or formal curiosity you now find yourself with having written pure color? What, what elements are pulling on you for your imagined next project? Um, I mean, there are, I feel like it's, I feel not wanting, like, I don't want to talk about it because okay. it'll just, it'll make it disappear. But um, <laughs> I do feel like it's funny because you work, I, I, you work and, you know, once the book is done, in my case, there's, there was like six months between when the book was done on my end in terms of the final edits and the cover and it appearing in the world. And, you know, those last six months were so filled with anticipation and dread and the sense of being on hold as much as I try to resist it and say, well, no, I'm not in relation to the book coming out. I'm in relation to this moment. It was impossible, really. And then, you know, two weeks happen in which all the reviews come out and most of the interviews happen. And then it's done, you know, it, or it feels done. And, and now I can, I can think about what I might want to do next. But for the last six months, it's weird. You, you're just like on hold as much as you don't want to be like, you're still psychically tied to the book until that week or two weeks of its entry. Um, I guess just, yeah, how it is. I would, I would think it would be particularly so after the way motherhood came into the world. Um, but I wonder like, this is, I I'm curious about your, your impressions. Um, and your anticipation and dread about how pure color would be received because of, of of course pure color has received both positive and and negative reviews but but it feels to me like it's received a a preponderance of of thoughtful um 
investigations on its own terms. And I wondered if that's how it felt to you, that maybe something has shifted um, with this book. Yeah, I think so. In relationship, in, la- in relationship to the critical world. I think so. And I don't know, maybe you know why, but I don't really know why. But yeah, I, it, the, 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 the reviews that have come out have made me even more clearly feel like how bad the, how negative and how painful the last two rounds of this were for me. Yeah. By, by, by contrast, it's like, oh, it can be different from that, you know, and it can feel, it can be like this where, where I, that's not what I was anticipating. Yeah. And I don't know why it's changed. I don't, I don't think it's because of the book. Um, well, I don't know either because on the surface of it, I could see the things that you've done be opening you up to ridicule yeah. more, more than motherhood, honestly. Exactly. Um, yeah. But it feels like it's being received with less, uh, with more, more respect. Yeah. And you don't know why? Because I can't figure it out. <laughs> it feels, it feels <laughs> You're like, so smart. <laughs> it feels like a mystery to me too. But, um, yeah, no, I mean, I feel like you keep putting, and I say this in a, in a, with admiration, I think you keep putting the critics back on their heels. So um, maybe that they're, they're learning their lessons not to, to judge you too quickly. Okay. Um, well, let's go out with uh, a reading of two more short excerpts from Pure Color. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking 86 and then 72. She doesn't know why she spent so much of her life thinking about such trivial things or looking at websites when just outside her window, there was a sky that was not trivial. Had it been wrong of her not to understand that the sky was more valuable than a website? People once valued the sky, but only because they had nothing better, because they didn't have websites. It was hard to tell which was right. Either the sky was more valuable than a website or a website was more valuable than the sky. If she gathered together the amount of time she spent looking at websites and the amount of time she spent looking at the sky, then her life was clearly answering which was the more valuable for her. She and her father will never sit and look at a movie screen together, and the thought of never going to a movie with him again makes her miss him so unbearably, as though that was all they did, as though that was their favorite thing they did together. Was it? Maybe it was. She didn't realize it at the time, but now it's clear. It was their favorite thing. Why didn't they do it more often? Probably there wasn't always a good movie playing. Probably she was busy. Okay, page 72. Now walking outside, her hands quake and her heart quivers and quakes. And there is a quivering and quaking in her chest and heart from the whole world breathing on her and she had never known that it was all so alive. She never knew that through her entire life she was walking in the spirit of everything, and that the whole world, trees and breezes and leaves and air, was just as alive as her father had been. Because she had been so aware of the life of her father, she had not been enough aware of how alive the rest of it was. She had been too much looking at him. All her life, breezes were blowing on her cheeks, but this was something she did not notice. She had not understood that the spirit that animated the body of her father animated the body of everything. Trees and the sky were not a backdrop to life, 
but they were equally life. She thought, I am the daughter of everything. But then she thought, no, I am not the daughter of anything. There are no daughters anywhere on earth. Thank you for coming back on the show for a third time, Sheila. Thanks for having me for a third time. I love talking to you. You're such a great interviewer and such a great critic. We've been talking today to Sheila Hetty about her latest book, Pure Color. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. I can never believe the amount of research you do. It's just mind-boggling. <laughs> I'm, glad you, I'm glad you said that you were a secular Jew because I was going to ask you. I don't know. I feel like even though I feel like there is this... Um, in a lot of secular Jews, still this kind of like impulse, this sort of Talmudic, like reading yeah. and annotating. And I don't know, there's something there uh, for sure. You know, if there's anything that carries across from, you know, religious Judaism to uh, atheist Judaism, it is, I think that um, interpretive mm-hmm. um multiple viewpoint tolerance of contradiction but continually contradicting like that seems very talmudic and very like culturally jewish to me yeah yeah and not being troubled by it like taking pleasure and interest in it and yeah i mean it's like the exact polar opposite of like the impulse in evangelical christianity for like this is the literal word right like that's just doesn't that seems alien to jewishness to me the literal word Right. I don't know. I don't know if that's true, but but it's so weird, especially when they're reading it in translation. You know, yeah, which is so bizarre. That's, also, that's really true. Yeah, that's so crazy. I never even thought about that. I mean, because like for instance, like when I talked to Forrest Gander, it's like in Spanish. So in English, I think it's something like "In the beginning was the word." In Spanish, it's "In beginning." In the beginning was the verb. Oh wow, that, that's so different. Yeah. Right. But it's like they're both correct translations. Well, it's that Christian thing. And that's what I experienced in that school. Like, and I see it with my friends, you know, that you just have to follow unthinkingly and you have to believe and the questions are bad. And like, if you ask a question, like that's a kind of bad rebellion. Whereas like in Judaism, it's like, you don't have to believe you're just as Jewish. If you believe or don't believe, like God doesn't care really, you know, and as long as you do the things you can do it without anything in your heart. And like also the, and and it's fine. And also I think the idea that God can see your thoughts and you can sin by thinking that's so not Jewish and that just prevents intellectual activity. Like if, you know, I totally agree. And also the notion of, um, I love the notion of God wrestling being one of the definitions of Jews too, because like they're all arguing against God in the Bible. Right. And from the beginning, like these people are not um, submitting. Right. <laughs> they're, um, I mean, they're, and they're doing horrible things and good things. They're inspirations and they're also murderers and they're like, um, they're, they're wrestling. Yeah. I love that. I think that's so much more like this idea to me, uh, just while we're on this topic, the thing that bugs <laughs> me more than anything is this idea, like, I'm I'm skeptical of the progress narrative at large in the world, but the idea that um, we've evolved to a better form of God in the New Testament is so weird to me because if you think about it, which is more complex and more nuanced to make God and Jesus 
purely good and then to have a figure that's purely bad and Satan who like we all are supposed to be incredibly scared of. And then at the, and then at the end times, you're going to have all these terrible, terrible things happen to you forever. If you don't do what the good Jesus says, um, versus all of the characters having both in them yeah. in the, in the Hebrew Bible, like that seems way more nuanced narratively to me. Like the idea that, you know, Moses murdered somebody. He had a speech impediment. He didn't want to do what God said, but he led the people out of the, he led the people out of Egypt. Um, I don't know. Like that's just more, way more compelling storytelling. But that's so Jewish to think that evolution evolves towards nuance. Yeah. Like (laughs) it could just as easily be that evolution evolves, that somebody else would think evolution evolves to like some simplicity and, you know, these poles of good and evil to moral cleanliness in some way clarity yeah yeah. it's funny i i have this friend this um um and he's like talking to me about the quran and i was saying to him like oh the reason they had to get you know it's so boring that jesus doesn't have a wife because there's nobody to like humanize him and just to be like criticize him and to so we can see jesus through his wife's eyes and be like oh like he never does the dishes whatever like whatever it would really be and he's like, that's the interesting thing about muhammad is that he has all these wives and you constantly are seeing him through the eyes of all these wives which really humanizes him yeah but like jesus can't be like us like he can't be just like somebody who who's like bad at cleaning up who his wife gets mad at you know because then yeah no <laughs> i i, I want to see that jesus i know i know <laughs> Um, yeah today's program was recorded at the volunteer powered non-commercial listener sponsored full strength makeshift home office of me David Naiman more of Sheila Hetty's work, her essays, her criticism, her interviews, and other projects can be found at SheilaHetty.com. For the bonus audio, Sheila reads from her Alphabetized Diary Project. This joins her past reading of her essay, My Life as a Joke, as well as bonus audio from everyone from Garth Greenwell to Miriam Taves to Darren Negrifa. You can find out more about subscribing to the bonus audio and the other potential benefits of becoming a listener supporter at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Valla in the art department, Becky Kramer in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Browning.